Good morning, everybody. Okay, nice, cool, crisp morning out there today. A great place to be is here. We're all nine. So I thought I'd share with you a little story uh, to start off with. Uh, there was a small town, and in this tiny little rural town, they had three churches that had been there for years and years. They had a little Presbyterian church, <coughs> had a Methodist church, and a Baptist church. Um, but all three churches in the town, again, this is a rural little town, kind of in the backwoods a little bit, had a major problem. There had been a squirrel infestation, and they were just taking over the church buildings like crazy in the basement, in the attic, everywhere. So they were trying to decide what they were going to do with these squirrels. Well, in good church fashion, each denomination decided they would deal with the squirrel issue theologically with the background of their denomination, right? So the Presbyterians decided that it must have been predestined that God wanted the squirrels there at their church, so they just let them live and let them go and didn't do anything. The Methodist, on the other hand, went back to Charles Wesley, and uh, they decided to deal with them very humanely, but confront the issues. So they very humanely gathered up all the squirrels in the churches, in, in, their, in their church. They put them in cages. They brought them outside about six miles, and they released the squirrels in love and let them go. Well, three days later, the squirrels were all back, and they still had the problem. The Baptist, on the other hand, had the best solution. You know, leave it to good old Baptist. The Baptists got together and they kind of gathered the church the squirrels around there and had them all in there, and they ordained all the squirrels as members of the church. From that point on, they never saw them except for Christmas or Easter. Problem solved. Hey, I at least got a laugh from the deacon. That's pretty good. Tara's going to buy me a joke book for Christmas. I can see it in her eyes. She's like, oh, man. I stayed awake for this. Yes, you did. We are continuing in our, our small series. We end up next week with the, the finale of it, but how God tests our faith. And we've looked at the fact that when God tests our faith, different than our human emotion, our human condition, where when there's, we hear the word test or quiz, it's kind of like alarming, you know, it kind of puts us off, makes us a little uneasy and nervous. When God tests us, it's really a good thing because as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, it gives us perseverance and it gives us endurance, which produces uh, maturity and, and perfectness and completedness as we've looked at the verses in the New Testament, that that's what that testing produces. And again, if we find that we fail the test, which God always wants us, gives us a test in order that we'll overcome it and be victorious and put that notch in our spiritual belt to say, and, build those notches up till maturity, even if we fail it, we looked at the fact that it's not a bad thing because it gives us an opportunity to repent back to God and say, Lord, I need help in this area. This is a weakness for me, right? Last night, Christy's weaknesses was brownies. She limited herself to one, so she did pretty good, but she still broke down. And unfortunately, we had brownies in the house, so it's probably my fault too. But we have those weaknesses and they're chinks in our armor where the, where the devil can attack. As the Bible tells us, he the devil prowls the earth like a roaring lion looking for what? Souls to devour. I mean, this is a graphic word that Satan is trying to bring us down. And although we know that he cannot pull us out of the clutch of Christ's hands, if we allow ourselves to buy into the temptation and the testing that he brings, we can find ourselves, even as Christians, being very, very miserable, depressed, anxious, uh, lacking in faith. And so it gives us that chance to come back to God. So if you want to look with me, we'll be in a couple verses. We're going to start off in Matthew 9, 29. 
and then Psalms 139, and then Hebrews 12. So Matthew 9, 29, we've had this verse every message during our series. And Jesus is speaking, and when it comes to the testing of our faith now, he simply says this, according to your faith, it will be done to you. It's called theologically the law of expectation, and it's really an accountability verse that literally says we will pretty much really truly live out what we believe we'll live out, right? If we expect the future to be doom and gloom and bad, well, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because no matter what happens in the future, how will we see it? Doom and gloom and bad. If we expect the future to be great and joyful, well, guess what? No matter what happens, our attitude towards the future, when it comes, will be what? Great and happy and wonderful. Jesus is saying as, as believers, I've given you a measure of faith. And as I test you to mature you, it's not so much to give you more faith, but to teach you to enable and to use the faith that I've already given you to whatever measure that may be. But in these testings, God is not trying to make us miserable or to have our heads down in despair. He's trying to grow us to be overcomers so that our heads would be lifted. As the Bible says that Jesus is the lifter of our heads. When a child falls down and scrapes their knees, well, as a good parent, you look at them like, oh, you're so stupid, I bet that hurts, right? No, that's not what we do. But sometimes that's kind of the imagery that we take on ourselves as we go through trials and we test and we fall down and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid, right? You ever told yourself that, that when you fail and you know you should have won, you're like, I'm just so stupid, I'm so mature, oh, just, and our heads are down. What does a good parent do when a child falls down and skins their knees? They lift them up and they're like, okay, honey, it's gonna be okay. We'll wipe the dust off, we'll wipe the blood off, and it's going to be okay. Let's get up and get moving again. That's the imagery that God is trying to bring to us in the testing of our faith. That we come to that challenge, whether we fail or succeed, God is trying to say, keep your head lifted up. Don't look down and get stuck in the moment, but lift your head up and start walking and moving forward again in life. Because if we stop and we wallow in our despair, where do we stay? Right there. We don't go any further. The world is all horrible. Everything in life is bad. Oh, it's just miserable. Why am I born? And we start going to that area and we are just stalled. Intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, we cannot move forward. On the other hand, when we see that God is trying to lift our heads, whether we succeed or fail and say, come on, let's get up and keep moving. We are moving forward in a process called sanctification in growing in maturity. This is just one bump in life, but we're going to move on. We're going to pick up and go. In our spiritual life, what happens? We don't get stuck back in the past. We don't get stuck in the moment. We don't get stuck in despair because we're like, there is hope for the future. I can and have the ability and am fully functional of spiritually, emotionally, intellectually moving on. And that's where God is trying to bring us in this testing. Is one, to be overcomers, which we've talked about. God says, in Christ we are overcomers, right? That we don't get bound up in the shackles 
of woe is me and doom and gloom and despair and misery. But we realize those shackles have been broken. And like sin, no longer has a binding effect upon our lives or our heart or our minds. And we are free. And the Bible tells us that if we have been freed in Christ, it says this, you are freed what? Indeed, it's a double emphasis saying, if Christ has set you free, these things can no longer hold you unless, and here's the, the spiritual image, you pick up the handcuffs and slap them back on yourself. That's literally the image. The Christ says, those handcuffs, those bindings can't hold you anymore unless you choose to pick them up and put them back on. That old ball and chain, you've been released from it unless you walk back in and strap it back on. And then when you strap it back on, you are stuck again, right? Everybody know what we're talking about intellectually and spiritually? And Christ is trying to say, according to your faith, it will be done to you. So enact your faith and realize you are free from those shackles that can hold you and bind you. How long? No more. You are free from despair, free from anxiety, free from worry, free from failure, free from depression. We have been freed from all those things in Jesus Christ because we have the hope, not only the hope of this world, we have the hope of all eternity in heaven because we know the end of our story. And it turns out happily ever after, doesn't it? So as we go through this, we realize God is testing us with our attitude, that he's speaking to us in our spiritual attitude about our faith and our true trust and belief in him. He's saying, don't get stuck and don't reshackle yourself, but move forward in freedom. Move forward to new horizons. Move forward to what is in the future, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and endurance, which makes you complete and mature and whole. So that's where the foundation of what God is teaching us in these testings of our faith is all about. It's really a good thing as God tests us only with what we can handle. That's where we can ring true with James and say, I can count it all joy that God is testing me now with these issues because God is still in control and in Christ I am still free. Nothing can shackle me down if I put my heart and my mind back where it's supposed to be in Christ at the throne of my life. And that is really where the issue is, isn't it? It's keeping Christ in the forefront of our head. I do like the imagery of what the old Jewish Pharisees used to do. Symbolically, they would wear these little boxes called phylacteries. It was a little square box, and in that box, they had the law written on some scrolls, and they would put a strap on it, and they would put this box in the forefront of their head and strap it on so that they would always have God's law right there, right? So if you're having a bad moment, you look up, you see the box, like, oh yeah, God's law's still with me, I'm going good. Symbolically, that's where we need to be in the testing of our faith. In the forefront of our mind, we need to be saying, Oh no, Satan, you cannot overcome me, for Christ has redeemed me. Oh no, Satan, I cannot be overtaken if I entrust my faith in Christ. Oh no, I am not going to get bound up in despair and misery and doom and gloom and failure 
and depression because I am an overcomer in Christ and I have been freed and I am free indeed. And I don't want to wear the shackles anymore. I don't like the marks they put on me. I don't like the weight of what they're doing to me. I choose to enact my faith in Christ and be free. That's where the testing of Christ brings us. We've looked at a number of testings, and today we're going to look at the fact that God tests our faith with dollars. God tests our faith with dollars. And to do that, we want to look back at King David, because King David gives us some good and some bad examples of how the testing of our faith is lived out in real life. Because that's really where our faith is shown to be true or genuine. We looked at a couple of verses the uh, last couple of weeks where it says in the testing of your faith, one of the benefits of the testing of our faith proves that we are genuinely saved in Jesus Christ. And that's important to know, right? Because the alternative to not being saved in Christ is a future in hell with no hope. So the testing of our faith shows us that we are genuine. With King David, we look at King David in the Old Testament, and the Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart, right? He was a man after God's own heart. And we're like, yeah, I want to be like David, but you better wait and finish the rest of the story, right? You should always get the full story before you make a decision, right? King David was a man after God's own heart. He was blessed by God and chosen by God from the moment he was a child when he was out in the field watching over the sheep. God brings him in and ordains him as the new king, and his life is blessed. But then David began to take his spiritual blessings for granted. You ever do that when life is good and you just kind of take it for granted, you know? Everything seems to be going well. It's like, ah, I should pray and have some time with God, but, you know, life is just so good right now. God just must be blessing me. I don't need to do a whole lot. And that's one of the tests of God's faith in our life. So what David does is he shucks his responsibility later in life where his men are in battle. And as the king, where should the king be? In battle with his men. But where is David? He's kicking back in the palace back home in comfort. He ain't living in no tent out there around a campfire, you know, cooking up whatever varmint you can find. He is living in a palace with his servants. He is enjoying life. When biblically, as the king, his responsibility was to be with his men in battle. Isn't it crazy that in a symbolic sense, if we know there's a battle looming, we don't want to go there, right? If we know there's a spiritual battle brewing or there may be some contention that makes us stand for our faith, we just don't want to go there. And so like David, we choose to kind of ignore that. Well, what happens to King David? this man after God's own heart, who is taking it easy while his men are out fighting the battle. Well, start off with, David was sinning by not being where he should be. And what does sin produce? Do you know? More sin. And more sin. And more sin. David, over the next little while, adds up numerous, massive, major sins. He just sins, which leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, right? And instead of seeking God, he takes matters into his own hands. And isn't that what happens to us when we bind the temptation or we're tested by God and we fail? Rather than repenting back to God, 
we try and take matters into our own hands. The most common example is, you ever tell a little white lie to someone or a group of people? And then like a week or two later, they ask you about that and you realize you lied to them? And so now what do you have to do? You gotta tell another lie to make up for that lie, right? And the process just keeps going. So David's sin begat sin, who begat sin, begat sin, begat sin, until God does what he does best, and he sends a prophet to David, and he opens David's eyes, and David realizes his sin. David has failed the test of God miserably, miserably. But again, once he is confronted with our sin, and here's the beauty of God's testing, David has the opportunity to do what? Repent. And repentance always puts us back in the presence of God, and that's where we should have been in the first place, right? So David repents. He can't change things, and David is mature enough to know that there is this C word for sin. It's called consequence. That although David has repented to the Lord, David is mature enough in his life to know that there is a worldly consequence, a payment for that sin, that David literally ends up paying for the rest of his life and with his family. If you read the whole story. He pays in his life with his own son coming after him to take, overtake him as king. He pays for it with the sexual sins with his sons and daughters in the family. David knows there is a payment price for sin. Even though God has forgiven him, it's not a free pass, get off the train free card, right? There's forgiveness, but there's still a cost. But in that, David does something else. He realizes that he takes ownership for that consequence. He takes ownership for his sin. He takes ownership for his repentance. He takes ownership for the forgiveness that God has placed in his life. And then David makes an amazing statement in Psalm 139. 139 verses 23 to 24. This is what true repentance does in the life of a man or woman if we have been in sin or stuck in our misery and despair when we seek out God. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, David cries out, and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting ways. This is a small set of two sentences, but man, the spiritual power in this statement is huge. How many of you in your prayers this last week cried out and said, Lord, search me and test me? Anybody cry out for God to test him? I mean, we've been talking about testing for three weeks now. Haven't you got to the point in your personal quiet time going, Lord, search me and test me and show me who I am in you? Oh, we don't want to pray that prayer, do we? You know why we don't want to pray that prayer? Because God will answer that prayer, right? And we don't want that, right? But here's where David is. This is where David was a man after God's own heart. As once he had gone through this time and repented, he's like, there is nothing I can hide from God. This is so ridiculous. Me trying to hide my life from God. And so he cries out and he says, Lord, I have been so wrong. So Lord, now I come to you with a truly repentant attitude and I'm asking you to search me, Lord. Search me, try me, know my heart. 
know my anxious thoughts. In other words, David's saying, Lord, show me where I'm failing with my thoughts that don't have faith in you. Show me, Lord. Why? See if there be any hurtful way in me, Lord. Why? Because I want you to lead me in the everlasting way. Here's where we see the powerful impact of repentance. We're not afraid to let God see us. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, what's the first thing they did? They hid. Well, that's a stupid idea. Do you think God couldn't find them? When we sin, what do we do with God? We hide. Maybe he won't see me. Maybe I'll just pray this way because he knows the. maybe he doesn't know what's really in my mind or my heart right now, so I just will pray good things, right? What a silly thing. God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he plays a little bit. He's like, oh, Adam, Adam, where are thou? God knew where he was the whole time, right? When David was sinning, God knew what he was doing. He knew that David was running from him. When the prodigal son left his father, God knew that, and so did the dad. Hiding was stupid. But you know what Satan likes to get us to do in the testing of our faith? likes to isolate us and get us to hide our sins so that nobody will see them in secret right we all know that all too well don't we where we have tried to hide from God and hide from others of the true sin that's going on in our life and if we don't deal with it it begets more sin and more sin and more sin so David comes, and after all this, where he's a man after God's own heart, he's like, Lord, it's stupid for me to hide from you. Lord, search me and try me and know my heart, know my anxious thoughts, Lord, because I don't want them there. Know if there. Show me if there's any hurtful way in my life that I can eradicate it. And Lord, once you've dealt with me and made me wholly clean, lead me in the everlasting way. David is a prime example of God testing him, but it's what David does after this prayer that is absolutely amazing where it comes to our message today. David comes to God after he has gone through this, and he says, Lord, I want to glorify you. You have forgiven me, which is kind of a big deal, right? Isn't it kind of a big thing to be forgiven, to be freed from the shackles of this world and sin? It's huge. And David says, I realize, God, how much you have forgiven me. You have confronted me with the truth of my life, and you have given me a second chance. You have made me free. Lord, I want to give back to you because all goodness that you have given me comes from you. I want to give back. So David says, Lord, I want to build you a temple, <coughs> a great, massive temple to honor you. And God looks at David and says what? No, because you have been a man of bloodshed. You are not allowed to build a temple. Well, that would stop most of us to be like, okay, God, well, I tried, right? You know what a man of faith does? He comes back to God, and David comes back to God and says, Lord, if I can't build it, can I finance it? That I can lead the nation of Israel and my own wealth, and we can finance this massive temple for your glory. And God says, you can do that. You see, the great thing about David being tested, failing, repenting, coming back to God, giving God honor and glory, is David knew that if God says no here, well, that's a no. But is everything a no? Uh-uh. There's another place where God can still use you and use me. 
It may not be here, and it may not be here because of the consequences of our life, but there is always a place God can use us in a mighty way. And part of the aspect of the testing of our faith is to keep coming back to God and saying, Lord, where do you want to use me? I'm available. I am completely available to you, Lord. Where can you use me? Okay, I know where you said no. I can't do that anymore. I'm ousted here. That's off limits. But God, I am not useless in your hands, and you still can use me somewhere. Where can you use me, Lord? Isn't that a beautiful imagery of what David goes through? And God gives us and leaves that message in the Bible for us to glean from, to realize, hey, that can be like me. That can be like me. Lord, search me and know me and try me. And then God, show me where you can use me. Well, we've looked at how God tests us through difficulties. We've looked at how God tests us through demands. And today we look at how God tests our faith through dollars. And God tested David through his faith through dollars because after the testing of David's faith, when he said, Lord, I'm going to build you a kingdom with the finances of the nation of Israel and my own finances, I'm going to show you with my money that I'm serious about my relationship with you. And I understand the debt that you have paid for my forgiveness. And so he builds this massive temple for God with his finances, the nation's money and his own money, because this is God's nation. And he says, we need to honor the Lord together. Do you know, when you accepted salvation, you also signed up your dollars to go to God? It wasn't a separate transaction because God paid a debt here and we became indebted to God here, right? God paid our debt, our sin, which we could not pay, but now we owe God our life and our salvation and we are indebted to him. And so there should be nothing too massive for God not to ask of us with our resources or our dollars. But that's a hard reality for a lot of Christians to hear, especially American Christians, because we're told by the bumper stickers, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, is that true? No, but they still put the bumper sticker out there because a lot of people like it, right? Our world believes that if you amass more and more and more, whether it's wealth or resources, that's what life should all be about. And Christ comes back and says in the testing of our faith, we signed up our dollars of salvation. He's like, if you lost it all, you'd still be ahead. So I'm going to test your faith with dollars because money is one of the most sensitive issues in most people's lives. And literally, it can become an idol very quick, right? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 and then Proverbs 3. Hebrews 12, 4 to 13, we are confronted with the reality of how much we have truly sacrificed for our faith in Christ. Hebrews 12, 14 goes on to state this. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son who he receives. Man, this sounds like what such a loving family, doesn't it, so far? But it truly is love. Because love disciplines, corrects. Unlove does nothing. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Well, we can all relate with that one, can't we? All discipline, we'll repeat that for extra effect. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the perfect fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees of the feeble, and make straight your paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You hear what God is speaking to us in this passage in Hebrews? He's like, you really haven't suffered that much for your faith. None of us can relate with the apostles with suffering for our faith yet, can we? None of us have been martyred. None of us can relate with the persecuted church around the world that is imprisoned and tortured and separated. And like in Pakistan here a couple weeks ago, just had a mob come in and destroy their homes and they lost every material wealth. You and I have not suffered that point for our faith. But we think we've suffered, don't we? We think we've gone through a lot. It's almost, what, too much. But we know that God will test us, not test us more than we're able to handle. That's where we got to go back and say, God, teach me to enact the faith you've given me because I know the faith you've given me is enough. I just got to learn how to use it. God, teach me to use the faith you've given me to overcome that I may live in freedom and maturity. Much of what's being addressed here in our modern society is today's permissive attitude. You can do what you want, when you want, how you want, and nobody should say anything about it, right? Who is this ogre God that says you have to live by his commands? My goodness, he's so limiting. He's just no fun. That's what the world says, isn't it? Have you ever heard it with people you talk to? Well, I don't want to go to church. They have no fun. Have you seen those people? <laughs> Place is full of sinners. Well, come on in. There's room for one more. Come join us, right? Because the reality is when we get over this worldly mindset that God is no fun and his rules are limiting us and they're just a downer, that when we enact and obey God's words, what's the true reality? They free us. They free us. Proverbs 3, 11 to 18 tells us this. Son, when the Lord corrects you, pay close attention and take it as a warning 
The Lord corrects those whom he loves as a father corrects a son of whom he is proud. Happy, happy. What was that word? Happy is the man who becomes wise, who comes to have understanding. And how do we gain wisdom and understanding? We go through God's testings in our lives to see that we can overcome. Verse 14, there is more profit in, that, in it than there is in silver. It is worth more to you than gold. Wisdom is more valuable than jewels. Nothing you could ever want can compare with it. Wisdom offers you long life as well as wealth and honor. Wisdom can make a life pleasant and lead you to safety through it. Those who have become wise are happy. Wisdom will give them life. You see, it's just the opposite that God is restricting you. When we understand God's wisdom, we actually have happiness. And which would you rather have? Three mansions, your own island, and a bunch of servants, and be miserable? Probably a little cottage, and contentment and happiness all the days of your life. Which is truly of more value? Well, the cottage, because you're content, you're happy, you're joyful, you actually enjoy life. All those things don't make us happy. In fact, they often weigh us down because now we've got to take care of them, right? We get stuff, and then we've got to get more stuff to take care of our stuff, right? This is where God tests us with our dollars. Luke 16, 11, Jesus is speaking, and he gives us a spiritual message based on our finances. And Jesus talked a lot about money. Luke 16, 11, Jesus says, If you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, well, who's going to trust you with true riches? When he says true riches, what is he talking about? Spiritual, Spiritual treasures in heaven, things that are truly important and everlasting, faith, hope, and love, reconciliation, restoration, encouragement. And that's where God tests us with our finances to see if we're holding on more to our finances and resources than we are to God. To see if we've made those things an idol or we're even willing to give those up to seek God for true riches. You see, personal security, personal management of our finances is a test of spiritual maturity. And what does that mean? Well, I'm going to throw out some words that are Kind of considered cuss words in the church, even outside of the church. You ever heard of a word called budget? Yeah, it's great for other people, right? Yeah, I know up here we should live on a budget. But I don't because I've got freedom. And I'm going broke. Right? God says, know the, know the, the numbers of your dollars and where those dollars go. Budget. Be wise with your money. In other words, God's saying you need to have some self-discipline in your life. And if you can't control what you do with your money, how are you going to have self-discipline in your spiritual treasures? Well, I just can't because you'll enable me with the Holy Spirit, God. God says, no, i got to grow you up a little bit first. Because a child that can't handle this is still a child that can't handle this. They have to mature. And this is where it kind of pings us because we're like, but I have this money, and I have money, so I should, as the world says, I should be able to enjoy life, right? Well, yeah, but if it replaces your dependence upon God and true riches, 
then it's become an idol. Because what these things are no longer seeking God. Living in God's spiritual test of maturity is living on a budget. And a budget means I allocate the dollars that God has blessed me with. I give the first portion, the first fruits to God. And that's always scary because what do we do when we give that first portion to God? Well, I could use that money for here, or here, or here, or I may need that, or I may not have a month enough money to get to the end of the month. And God's like, right, this is where you trust me. You first give to me that I can see your heart is still mine, and then we'll go from there. So we give that first portion to God. And this is crazy. You see some of the stuff on Google and MSN. They had a big article on Google and MSN just this last week that says, why you really don't need the tithe. And I wanted to say, why do you want to go to hell? And people read that and like, huh, I don't need to do that. When you read through the Bible and it's an attitude of the heart, it's a form of commitment to God, isn't it? So we give God those first fruits. Then we allocate some for us, right? Then we put a little portion away for the future because we know the future's coming and things happen in the future, right? Well, I didn't plan on that fridge breaking down or the ceiling crashing in or the car breaking down or the cat having to have surgery, which cost me $9,000. I didn't plan on that. Well, of course you don't. But you can plan to have the finances to pay for that. And then we put a portion away sacrificially for others. Because if you read through the Old Testament, New Testament, God says, you should not be those in debt to others, but you should be the one what? Lending to help them out. And this is where even church members have a lot of issues with God in the Bible. Because they have a prevailing attitude that says, hey, I earned that money. No, you didn't. God put you in that place and provided for you to whatever level you were at. And how you choose to deal with those finances is directly correlated to your spiritual maturity. And most church members don't want to hear that, do they? I don't like to hear it, and I believe it's true. That how I deal with my finances directly correlates to my spiritual life. So if I want to get my spiritual life in order, oh, what do I got to do? deal with my finances. I got to be responsible, accountable for them. I got to know where that money goes. And there are times when I want that chocolate latte fudge, whipped cream, ice cream, coffee, vanilla espresso shot for $19 a cup. Oh, that's been so hard to make it so much better. Plus, I probably should go out for dinner because I'm just exhausted and I don't want to make food. So I'll spend 50 bucks for that. No, I'll just have Uber deliver it. That's another 40 bucks. Oh, yeah. I feel better. And I'm out $300. Dealing with our finances teaches us to say no to who? To me. Huh? Three favorite people, me, myself, and I, and I gotta tell all three of them no now. You know there's gonna be a fight? Three versus me? Oh man. But here's the beauty. When we budget and take care of our finances, suddenly we're financially free. 
because we have the money saved, we have things taken care of. We've learned to tell ourselves no, so now if something happens and I have to tell myself no, it's not so hard. Do you know why? Because I've been practicing and I'm getting darn good at it. Praise be to God. Because spiritually when God tests us, not just with our finances, but with difficulties and demands, and that spiritual aspect, if we've learned to say no to ourselves to budget our finances, on a spiritual level, when there's a demand in our life or a difficulty in life, we now have the self-discipline to know what to do. You see how it all crosses over and correlates? You get it right in this area, you can get it right in this area. You don't do it in this area, it ain't going to happen in this area. That's why we're talking about how God tests us so that we can take control of that. Now I have a friend, he's not a Christian. He makes good money, his girlfriend makes good money. They live very well. They love to go out and eat, they love this stuff. So we got to talking about some of the stuff a couple weeks ago about budgeting. Now he doesn't tithe, he's not Christian, but just about budgeting, because he's like, man, we're just blowing so much money. And they were, going out to eat on a regular basis, breakfast, lunch, dinner, little bagel, little scone, little latte, little coffee. It all adds up, right? So he started budgeting. And here's the trap we fall into. He did really well for a while. And then after telling himself no for a while, well, that one cup of coffee really wasn't a big thing, is it? I don't have it budgeted in, but I mean, it's been a couple weeks. I should just buy that coffee. And what is that called? Rationalization justifying my actions, because I still know that I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? And you know what happened after he went out and he bought that one cup of coffee the last two, three weeks? There ain't no budgeting no more. In fact, the conversation is, I make good money, I should be able to use it to enjoy my life. Which there is a truth to that, but that truth is held within obedience and control accountability, responsibility. When Christy and I were first married, for some reason we had not won the billion dollar lottery those first couple of years. In fact, I led Christy into marriage in this thing called school debt. It was a lovely thing. We both loved it, right? And send that check off to other people every, every month, getting nothing back for it. Just see that check go away every month, every month. And it was hard for us to tithe. And in fact, to be brutally honest, Christy was better at it than I was because I would rationalize and justify. I'm like, we don't have enough. And if we tithe, we're going to be short. She's like, well, God says to do it. You're a youth pastor. What are you going to do? Huh? Well, put it that way. Fine. Right? So we learn to tithe and it's crazy that I know in the forefront of my mind there wasn't enough to go all the way. But we gave the first fruit to God. I had to have Christy write the check out because my hand shook too much to do it. It just was so hard. So she wrote the check out and we did it faithfully. And you know what? We never went without anything. There was enough to pay the bills. We had enough food. We didn't starve. Enough gas for the car. Miraculously, God would provide somehow. Now, it may not have been a filet mignon, it may have been the dollar menu, but God provided somehow. And then he said, you need to 
put some away. And I'm like, we don't have enough to put away. We're tithing. We, we don't have enough anyway. And you want us to put some away now? Christy's like, well, yeah, you're a youth minister and God says to do it. What are you going to do? It's a rough wetness when you can't do what God says to do when you're the pastor or the youth minister, right? So we put money away. Well, now, 30-some years later, I look back and I'm like, well, that was probably one of the best decisions we ever did was just to trust God and believe him and deal with that with our finances. Because now we have resources if we need it. Because we've learned to say no in certain aspects of our life. And that's what money is about. And I've been unemployed. We've been in situations, we've had medical bills, we've had cars that needed help, we've had house repairs, and of course, we've had kids. And they cost a lot of money. I remember before being married, someone put out a little survey that cost like $1.4 million to raise a child to 18. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to make it, and she wants six. That's millions of dollars, right? Somehow God provided. Same is true with our church here, that for the first couple years of our church, we never had a place to call our own. But we trusted God, we were faithful with our tithing, we were faithful with our resources. God moved us around and we didn't know the future. It's kind of like walking through the wilderness for 40 years, right? We were at Wheeler Farm, then we're downtown, and then we're in the Church of the Sardines down the hall, and then we're in an old, run-down, beaten-up, dirty warehouse, and it's like, where are you leading us? What is this? I still remember your all faces when we first went in, and I said, hey, here's our new church. It's like, this is a dump, John. Yeah, but God does great things with dumps, right? But look where God has brought us now because we've been faithful in those finances. What did we pay for this building Where did we get this building from? Non-believer. God says, when you are faithful, I will provide. And that's where God tests our finances and our resources so that those things do not become an idol. Well, I've saved, 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 so I'm never going to give now. Well, why not? One of the legacies that God calls us to do which some of us have been the benefits of, and now it's our place, is to have a legacy of leaving finances for the next generation or even the generation after that. Some of us have received a blessing from our parents, haven't we? From our grandparents. And God calls us to provide for those future generations. Not to spoil them, but to provide. And to provide for others in our neighborhood, in our church. Second Corinthians chapter 8, look there with me. couple little short stories I'll share with you about what God did in people's lives. I just came across these four and I thought they were interesting. One family was selling their large home and moving into a smaller one. Do you know why? So they could donate the money to the church land to buy it to build a church on. Several families were postponing the remodeling of, their, of certain rooms in their houses to give that money to the church that was currently in need. There's a lady who returned an expensive dress that she had bought for a, a party and she wore one of her old dresses instead that everybody had seen and she gave that money for the dress to the church to help them out. Another guy gave up smoking and figured out how much it cost him in a year to smoke and donated that money to God. Good things or bad things? Good things because it showed them that they were no longer shackled 
by those possessions and finances they were willing to give. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 7. Excel in the grace of what? I'm reading New, Mer New, New International Version, by the way. Excel in the grace of giving. When you excel, what do you do? Oh, I just kind of so-so, right? When you excel, what do you do? You go above and beyond. And here we're told in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, 8, excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your heart. Here's the NIV version. But just as you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through he, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And when it says that through Christ's poverty we became rich, was he talking about worldly possessions? Maybe, maybe not. It's not bad to be rich. It's not a sin to be rich. Not at all. It's just how you choose to be rich and deal with those finances. But the true riches were spiritual riches, right? And in this 2 Corinthians 8, 7, 8, Paul is saying, I'm not commanding you to excel in giving. I'm not making it a legal law because we don't like oh, laws and have-tos and check the box, right? He says, but I'm telling you to excel in giving. Why? because I want to test the sincerity of your heart. Greedy misers are not good, happy people, are they? I mean, they've been around for history. Ever remember of a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge? We hear it every Christmas, right? He was a miser, he collected every penny, he didn't pay his employees, he took, took, took. And he was probably the most miserable man on earth, and nobody liked him he was Ebenezer Scrooge until God radically changed his heart and as the story goes he understand he finally became to understand the true spirit of Christmas which is about loving Christ and giving and when he chose to gave to give what happened to his heart well it's like the Grinch it burst open four times bigger right because he wasn't shackled by the bondage possessions and wealth. When I say shackled by the bondage of possessions and wealth or debt, you know what I'm talking about? It's not fun. God has enabled us this testing of our finances to drop those shackles and be free again. It comes in the form of giving, of giving out of debt, of being responsible for our dollars and our money. In fact, Paul would go on to address the Corinthians and the Macedonians, and even compare churches saying, hey, do you see those guys over there? They're giving more than you give. Can you keep up with them? They're giving out of their all sacrificially, and you're just giving out of your surplus. Can you give sacrificially? God also gives us the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, a couple who tried to trick God with their finances. Remember that couple? They came in, they sold a piece of property, which was all theirs. They brought it to the church, but what did they do? They lied about it. 
They said, here it is. Here's the whole sum. And the apostles addressed them and said, well, didn't you keep some back for yourself? Oh, no, 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 no. And they were confronted that day about lying to God. It was not wrong that they kept money for themselves. The problem was they lied to God about it and said, we're giving it all. When the reality was they kept some back for them. Man, how'd you like to be in church that day on tithe talking, right? And then after he dies, while he's being carried out, who comes in? His wife comes in and they just said, well, great for this great donation. Is it everything? Oh, yes, it's everything. Well, go join your husband. She dies too. And then I'm sure the apostle jumped into a preaching on tithing that Sunday because they were going to have some impact. I'd be scared to death. I get it, scared to death to go to church. I'd be scared to death not to tithe because you see the toast people happen to them. Here's the reality. God doesn't need your money. He provides your money and your resources for you. God wants your heart to test the sincerity of your heart. And I pray for all of us that we all pass the test. Because when we pass this test of dealing with God, testing us with our finances, of budgeting, of getting out of debt, of giving, you know what we get in return? We get freedom. Because those things no longer shackle me down. I don't focus on what I've got saved and how I can keep it there just for me, 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 me. There's also the story in the Bible of the guy that did that, right? He built up storehouses. He says, hey, I had a great bumper year. I'm going to build bigger storehouses for me. And God says, you fool. This very night, your life will be required of you. Isn't it interesting? Ananias, Sapphira, and this guy, they all did it for them. And what did it cost them? Well, just their life. That's all. God wants to give us freedom. And that comes by not having idols, finances, and resources. So here's a question. You want to be free and free indeed in Christ? Well, then what do we got to do this week? Go back and make sure we don't have an idol hiding in our back room or our bank account, right? And deal with that. It's not bad that you have resources and possessions. Please don't, please don't misconstrue that. It's not bad if you're wealthy. It's how you deal with that wealth, how you deal with the finances, how you deal with your resources. And if God is still always number one of the first fruits, amen? Let's pray. Lord, I just love the fact, like David, that you just, man, you hit a square in the eyes with some of this stuff. You don't pull punches. You just lovingly confront us directly like David was confronted by the prophet. Well, the prophet says, dude, you're the one with the problem with this, not everybody else. And Lord, like David, I pray that we would come to a point that we would be men and women after your own heart, that once we repent of our idolatry, of our money and our resources, that we would glorify you in them and however you would have us to do that. And Lord, like David, we would have the freedom to say, search me and know me, Lord. See if there be any hurtful way or any bad thought in my mind, Lord, that you may lead me in the everlasting way of true joy and contentment and true treasure built up in heaven. God, help us not to be a people with idols, but help us to be a people who has the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one true living God, 
as the keeper of our lives, realizing that all good things come from you and should glorify you. In Jesus' name.